Good morning. Oh boy, we're asleep. Let's try that again. Good morning. That's better. How's everyone doing? Good, good, good. Um, I'm excited to be here today. Uh, we are finishing up our uh, series on parables. Um, but before we jump into the parables, I want to show you a picture. Does that spark fear in anyone? Yeah, some of you know what's going on. Uh, if Goodwill donations, they're up 30% in the States, are any indication, some of you know exactly what's going on here. This is a part of the Mary Kondo method. And if you're not familiar with her, uh, she is a Japanese woman who uh, came up with this method to help us declutter, help us organize our lives. She wrote a book. My wife read it. We did this two years ago. It got turned into a Netflix show, and now it's this huge, huge deal. Called, uh, the show's called Tidying Up. And what she tells us to do is she tells us to take all of our stuff. She's got like five categories, I think. She tells us to take all this stuff in these categories and you put it all in one spot. So clothing is one of them. So to, to do her method, what you would do is you would take all your clothes and you would put them all in one centralized location, like this. This woman's clothes are all piled up on her bed. And then what you do is you go through the clothes, one by one, you look at them, and if the clothes sparks joy, then you keep it. And if it doesn't, you say thank you, and you get rid of it. And you do this with clothes, you do this with books, you do this with paperwork, you do this with all these different things uh, in your home, and by the time you get done with it, you've cleaned out a bunch of your stuff, you've organized, and, and it's great, it works. We got rid of like six full bags of clothes. So like, it, it, it's, it's effective. Um, we love this kind of stuff, don't we? We love self-help, new trendy ways to like clean up our lives, make our lives better, do something that's gonna like make us feel good today. In fact, the self-help industry is booming. And this is just the latest trend in the self-help industry, but the self-help industry is booming. It is now a $10 billion a year industry. That's billion with a B, $10 billion a year industry. That puts it just over Major League Baseball in revenue per year and just under the NFL. It's a huge, huge industry, and it's just growing. They expect it to be 13 billion next year and just continue to go up and up and up as the years go. Especially Americans, we cannot get enough of this self-help stuff. And it's not new, it's been going on for a long time. Sure, this tidying up thing is the newest thing, but just, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but internally raise your hands if any of this sounds familiar to anyone. Weight Watchers, Slim Fast, The Beverly Hills Diet, Jenny Craig, Liquid Diet, Low Fat, Zone Diet, South Beach, Atkins, Masters, Master Cleans, Raw Food Diet, Gluten-Free, Paleo, Whole30, Keto Diet. Anyone tried any of those? Yeah, there we go, I saw some hands. That's since 1970, those are the top fad diets that have hit us. And I didn't even mention some of my favorites, like the Cucumber Diet, or the Juice Diet, or my ultimate favorite, which apparently hit Hollywood back in the 80s, the Cookie Diet. Like, we love something that is gonna be the next quickest thing to just help us get the results that we want, right? We're always looking for that quick fix, the next great thing. And so, other than just telling you about a parable today, I'm gonna, gonna give you a tip. I'm gonna tell you something. It's gonna save you a bunch of money, and here it is. It's very simple. If you want to lose weight, consume less calories than you burn. That's it! If you want to lose weight, consume less calories than you burn. Done. You will lose weight. Scientific. That's how it works. 
But why don't we do that? Why do we try millions of other things? Why do we try the cookie diet and the cucumber diet and everything else instead of just doing that? Well, it's hard. It takes persistence. Day in and day out, you've got to continue down that same path, right? When I go home today, I'm going to be tired, preach two sermons, everything else. I'm not going to want to cook. What am I going to do? I'm going to drive right past McDonald's. My kid's going to go, can we go to old McDonald's? And I'm going to go, yeah, okay, sure, let's go to old McDonald's. I'm going to get there. I'm going to tell myself I'm not going to have fries. And what am I going to do? I'm going to get fries. And I'm going to say to myself, you know, I'm not going to have a normal Coke. I'm going to have a Diet Coke instead. And we kind of make these, like, things with ourselves, right? These, these deals. But, but to be persistent in that, it's, it's, it's not it's not going to McDonald's. Or when I get home, I'm going to be tired. I'm going to just say, hey, I should go for a run. I should work out. No, I'm going to watch Netflix instead. And you go, no, each day in, day out, you got to keep making those same choices, right? To get to where we want to get to physically, it takes endurance. Over time, it takes endurance. And I think what we're going to find today is that spiritually, it's no different. To get to where we want to get to spiritually, to where God calls us to be spiritually, it takes endurance. The parable that we're looking at today is called the parable of the persistent widow. And it's in Luke 18. And for some context, we're going to actually start in Luke 17. So I'm going to give you a chance to uh, flip open your Bibles. Luke 18 um, is, where we're going to, is where we're going to be mostly. Start in Luke 17. If you don't have your Bible, that's fine. We'll have some of the verses up there. While you're doing that, let me introduce myself. My name is Christian. I'm the middle school program director here at Eastridge. And uh, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to get to share with you guys today. So the parable we're looking at, like I said, is the parable of the persistent widow. And uh, we're, we're jumping back into, uh, before we get there, into chapter 17 of Luke. And when we get into chapter 17 of Luke, we're going to catch up with Jesus, his disciples. And, and right in verse 20, we are going to get a question from the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are going to ask Jesus this question. They're going to ask Jesus, when is the kingdom coming? When is the kingdom coming? And they're going to look at the Messiah, or they're going to, because they've been looking for the Messiah, right? They're asking, why is the kingdom coming? They've been looking for the Messiah. And this isn't just in the New Testament. This is way back in the Old Testament. People have been looking for the Messiah for a long, long time. And what they're expecting is not what Jesus is, right? They're expecting someone who's going to come in powerful, going to be a political ruler, going to overthrow the Romans. In verse 21, we get this. Jesus, uh, he's, Jesus says that if you're looking for someone to overthrow these guys, right, you're looking in the wrong spot. You're going to miss me. And he says this, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Saying, hey guys, I know you're looking for somebody. Guess what? He's already here. It's me. In 17, 26 through 30, Jesus starts to describe what the days will be like leading up to the Son of Man coming back. And he starts with the first example is in Noah. Is about Noah, and it's in verse 26, it says this, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. In verse 28, he continues, it was the same in the day of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but the day of Lot left Sodom, but the day uh, Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It was just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, we can expect when Jesus comes back that everyone is going to be just living their ordinary, daily, typical lives. 
So that is what is happening. That's the context before Jesus jumps into this parable of the persistent widow. And I think it's important for us to know that. In fact, in the very first word in, in, uh, in this parable is then. So he's saying, hey, guess after all of this, this is the answer to what I was just talking about. And this parable is a short parable. We've been going through lots of different parables over the last several weeks. This is a short parable. It's only eight verses. And Jesus kind of breaks it into a few different sections. In verse one, he's going to give us the lesson. He's going to tell us the meaning of it right away. Hey, this is exactly what this parable is, is, is about. In verses two through five, he's going to actually tell us the parable. He's going to tell us the story. In verses Six and seven, and actually halfway through verse eight, he's going to give us a promise. He's going to say, hey, here's the story. Here's the promise that I have about this story. And then in verse eight, he, or the second half of verse eight, he's going to leave us with a question. So it's, it's short, but there's a lot of components to it. And I want to start with verse eight. I know we're going to start at the end and kind of work our ways backwards here. But I want to start with that question. So that question's in our minds as we're looking through the rest of this parable. And the question is this. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And remember what he was just talking about in chapter 17. He's talking about when... Right before the world was destroyed with Noah, people were just doing their normal stuff. Right before Sodom, people were just doing their normal stuff. And he's saying, when God comes back again, are we going to find people that have faith on earth? Or are they just going to be so caught up in their ordinary daily lives? And Jesus has been giving teachings, right? We've heard some parables uh, that have been leading up to this. But even through all of his teachings, he's been giving teachings, saying, giving warnings, saying, hey, I'm coming. Here I am. Don't miss me. You know, it's I'm right here, and people are still glossing over it. And he's saying, hey, man, it's time to catch, catch what's going on here. Don't miss me. I don't want to come back and have you guys miss who I actually was. And he's asking this directly to his disciples as well. He's saying, hey, you guys have been hanging out with me. You guys know me. You guys have seen my stories. You guys have seen my miracles. You guys have seen all of this. At some point, I'm not going to be here. Are you guys, when I come back, are you guys going to still be on fire like you are right now? So let's jump into the actual, the actual parable here. Let's look in verse 1, chapter 18. And it starts like this. Remember, uh, the first verse is the, is the lesson, exactly what, he's teach, what he wants us to gain from this, this parable. And it says this. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So that's what Jesus is going to, the whole lesson. There it is. Always pray, don't give up. Short, simple, compact. The ESV says it this way, and I like this at the end. Instead of, it says, always pray and don't lose heart. And I like that, that term a little bit better. The Greek word for that don't lose heart part means to fail in heart, to faint, or to give up. Kind of on the same thing. But it's this idea of coming to the end of your patience, the end of your endurance, and deciding, I can't go on anymore. I've been trying so hard. Go back to the diet. I've been working really hard. I've been trying. You know, I worked out for an entire week. I lost, I did everything. I only lost a pound. I'm so discouraged. I'm giving up. I've lost heart in the fact that I've been trying to do this. And he's saying, don't lose heart. This is a long race. Don't grow weary. Don't turn into evil. Don't turn coward. What should you do? Pray, 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 right? And we're going to find out the reason why here. Okay, I got to do a review. I had the opportunity to do the first sermon in this series. 
uh, and opened us up with what parables are. We talked about the parables of the four soils. So if you were here, this is a test. Hopefully you remember, but I wanted, if you weren't, I'm going to like hopefully teach you what a parable is really quickly here. If you were here, hopefully this would be just a quick brief reminder. A parable is a short, simple, everyday story with a point. Short, simple, everyday story with a point. And it helps us understand spiritual truth by using everyday objects or lessons. I said when, on my last time I was up here, I said that no one can actually agree on a, a formal definition of a parable because parables are all slightly different. But generally, that's what it is. And I used a quote by C.H. Dodd, who's a New Testament scholar, and he wrote the book, The Parables of the Kingdom. And I found this quote to be the best little like, description of what a parable is. So I'm going to read it again because I liked it so much. At its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life. Arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, we're going to find strangeness today, and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt, I think we'll also be in doubt today, to its precise application to tease the mind into active thought. Meaning it's not so straightforward and so easy that everyone at first glance gets it. It's, they're kind of weird. Yeah, they make sense because they're culturally relevant and they're short and simple, but at the same time, they leave us with some doubt and they're going to kind of tickle our minds, hopefully, into thinking about what is Jesus actually saying here. So that's a parable. Now that you know, let's dive into the parable that Jesus gives us today, the parable of the persistent widow. He's given us a warning. We've already figured out what the question at the end of it is, but let's hear the actual parable, the actual story. It's in verse 2, and that's where we're going to begin. It says, he said... In a certain town, this is Jesus talking, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversaries. So this is, the, this is the story. This is how it's set up. It doesn't matter where it is. It's in some town. He doesn't tell us where it is. And we've got two main characters. We've got a widow and we've got a judge. And I think we should take a moment to look at both of these and think of them as the disciples are there. They're sitting there listening to this story, right? Put it in their context. See, for the judge and the widow, these are two very common people, and they would have had kind of like this mind reference for who these type of people are. See, the judge and the widow represent opposite ends of the spectrum. The judge is the epitome of power, and the widow is the epitome of powerlessness. powerlessness. And together... They're kind of on either side of, of the spectrum. Let's start with a judge. A judge back in the day was expected to be impartial, same today, a judge to judge righteously, and to recognize that judgment ultimately belongs to God. And where does this come from? This comes from Moses back in Deuteronomy. So Moses, the, uh, he's broken through, the Israelites are with him, and he's like, oh man, I got a bunch of people. I got to figure out some rules and some regulations and some laws and some, how are we going to run all of this stuff? And he starts setting up this community for the Israelites. And he gets to this point in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where he outlines what a judge should do. And it says this, and I charge you judges at the time, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly. Whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you, do not show partiality in judging. They're both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. So in this story, is this judge a good judge? The judge is not a good judge. In fact, he's a bad judge, and the people hearing this are going to recognize this right away. Because you can't expect a judge who does not fear God and does not respect people to be a good judge. 
So that's clear. In that first little bit, people hearing this are going to recognize right away, hey, this is not what Moses told us a judge should be. This is not a good judge. So let's talk about the widow. So widows are also somebody that is, would be very common in this culture. In fact, probably more common in that culture than even in our culture. Because women back in that time got married in their teens. They get married very young and they'd often marry older men. And so just how nature works is that the men would die off sooner and there would be a lot of women left unmarried, a lot of widows left, left around. And this was like very common. So people knew who widows were. And in fact, this, I found this interesting, that widows actually had to dress in a certain way. So not only did you like see them or would be like, oh, I heard that her husband died. But you'd be like, oh no, she's dressed this way. That's clearly a widow. You could tell from, from a distance. And the Bible's very, very clear about our responsibility to widows. Because of their vulnerability, the scripture demands special protection for them. And I'm not going to list all of them. There's several, several, but I'm going to give you just three. In Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 19, God has a special affection for widows, and he talks about that in that, in that part of scripture. In Acts 6, 1 through 6, we hear that the early church provides food and comfort and helps people, uh, and helps widows in particularly. In 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 5, widows are honored because of their dependence on God. And so widows are set up as this kind of special group of people, this special group of, of, of women that, that are vulnerable and are, by the scriptures, are told that we're supposed to respect and care for and love for. So let me read those verses again, he, starting in verse 2. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea. Grant me justice against my adversary. Now we're moving into verse 4. For some time he refused, that's the judge, but he finally said to himself, even though I don't fear God and care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. This is funny. So now these people are like, remember what a, what a parable is supposed to do. We're like, wait, okay, so we got these two people. Am I supposed to be this person? Why is a widow attacking a judge? Like, you know, it's kind of like, it's not fully making sense at first glance. So let's see what we've got going on here. Obviously, we've got the widow, and the widow is persistent in her request for justice, right? She keeps coming back and back and back and back, asking for the same thing over and over. And at some point, the judge finally relents and he says, okay, I'm going to give you what you need. But I love that in the story, the judge doubles down, right? Just a verse ago, you know, Jesus, Jesus is telling the story. He's like, I don't know. I don't respect God and I don't respect people. And what, is, what does he do another verse later? He says, hey, I know she keeps coming and keeps coming. She hasn't changed my mind. No, I still don't like people and I still don't really respect God. But you know what? She's annoying me, so I'm going to do it for her. And at the end, I like this. He's worried about this. So she won't eventually come and attack me. And that, what that actually means, if you look back into the original text, that, if that translates into, so she won't give me a black eye. Like, like figuratively, like, she's worried that, like, he's gonna, like, she's gonna punch him. And I, I don't know if this is correct or whatever, but, I, but I'm gonna run with it. I think this is interesting because, like, as a judge, one, there's the physical black eye, right? But as a judge, there's also this, like, kind of, like, social black eye component to it, Right? And he's going, hey, I know widows are supposed to be this protected group of people. We're supposed to care for them. What are people going to think of me if I don't do what I should do and act justly for her? Man, that's going to give me socially a black eye as well. So I think, I think Jesus is kind of playing on both of those things there. 
Let's get into verse 6 now. So that is the parable. Short, sweet, to the point. Start in verse 6. Jesus starts to tell us the promise. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. So Jesus is saying, hey, here's the promise of this. Yeah, this judge is this way, but man, God's going to do something completely better than that. And then, once again, in verse 8, he, or the second half of verse 8, he ends with the question, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So let's, let's analyze it. Let's summarize this a little bit. We've got a widow who comes to an unjust judge and pleads for help, right? She's being oppressed unjustly and wants him to use his authority to help her out. We've got a judge, and he acts poorly, and he acts out of self-interest at the end, but he does rule in her favor. And as we look at these two people, it's pretty easy to look and say, hey, okay, the widow's us, right? Without God, we're helpless. We need we, we're special people to God. Like, we can't do things on our own. Like, I can relate to that. I get that. So we're the widow in this story. But when you look at then how Jesus explains God as the judge, that's where things are like, wait, that doesn't match up with who I think God is. God's not unjust. God's not, like, mean. God's not a bad, a bad judge. And this, and this parable is a little bit different than others. See, this parable, we use this theme called a how much more type of theme. And what that means is, is that we're going to look and say, hey, look how bad this judge is. Look how, look how unrighteous he is. And look, in the end, he still provides for this widow. How much more will the God of the universe who loves and cares for you provide for you? If even an unjust God, judge will do this for the people in need. How much more will the God of the universe who loves and cares for you provide you with your needs and desires? How much more will the righteous God answer our prayers? And that's kind of this like ping pong thing that's going back and forth between the disciples' heads at this point. They're going, wait, who is, what, what is he telling me? Oh yeah, oh God doesn't do that. Oh yeah, but God told me this. Like, Jesus told me that God loves me, and we're going back and forth here. And that's kind of like what, like, like, like C.H. Dodd said, it's, it's teasing their minds into thinking through this. What I don't think this parable is saying, there's three things. I don't think this parable is saying that we can wear out God with our request and that we, he will help us just to get us off his back. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. That doesn't match up with other things that we know about God. We can't just wear out God with our requests and annoy him to the point that he will answer us. God, I want a puppy. 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 Fine, I'll give you a puppy. You know? That's not how God works. I don't think the parable is saying that God will not answer our request promptly unless we bother him with constant pleas for help. I don't think he's saying, if you really got an answer, you've got to answer, you got to ask 75 times. After the 75th time, then I'll give it to you. Because there's plenty of examples in the Bible where God answers prayers right away. So I don't think that's the moral of the story either. And lastly, I don't think God is worried about his reputation, and I don't think he acts out of fear 
of getting a black eye, right? God is who he is. He's confident in who he is. And he doesn't just respond to us just purely out of what he thinks is social pressure. Oh my gosh, those people aren't going to like me. Or those people will think this of me if I do this. No, he's just. He does what's righteous. He does what's good. And so he's not going to act out of fear. The point is this. If the unjust judge, who could not have cared less for the widow, responded to her cry for help, then shall not God, who loves his chosen people and gave a son for us, answer our prayers when we are under trial or in need? How much more will God take care of us? The parable is intended to be an encouragement for us to pray continually until Jesus comes back, right? We talked about that, that question at the end. Is anyone going to be here? Is anyone going to have faith when I get back? Well, here's how you do it. Pray. Pray until, pray continuously. It's an encouragement. Pray until Jesus comes back. Remember verse 1. Jesus told us the disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And the widow in this story does not prevail because she's persuasive. It's not like she has a great argument. It's not like she came back and she's like, hey, I've actually switched things up. I was asking for this. Now I've changed my, my structure and now I'm going to ask for it this way. Ooh, no, I could add this and I bet that would be more. I'd probably get my answer if I ask it this way. She didn't change anything. She kept asking for the exact same thing over and over and over. The reason that, Jesus, or that the judge answers her is because of her persistence. She just wasn't willing to give up. She just said, hey, I'm going to keep doing this. Persistence is continuing a course of action in spite of difficulty or opposition. To be persistent, it requires difficulty or opposition. If it just comes super smooth and super easy, then that's not being persistent. Being persistent is having to work through those things and continuing on dis even, in regard even though that those things are, ha are happening. And as we've already explored, persistence is really challenging. We know this in our culture. I mean, just like I said, look at like dieting or exercise or keeping up with whatever. It, it's challenging. And we as a society are always looking for the next greatest thing, the quick way out, the fad diet, the magic pill, whatever it may be. And God knows this. He knows that we are inclined to do the same thing with our faith life. And so he's instructing us, hey, don't do it. There's no easy way out. I'm encouraging you to continue, persist, go forward. Jesus is telling us that we must resist the human tendency of growing weary in prayer. Don't grow weary. Continue. Yeah, there's going to be things that come along that are going to want to pull you away from your prayer life. Don't do that. Persist through. We as humans give up really easily. And I, and, and I think we have this tendency to lose heart really easily as well. And as I was thinking about that, as I was reading through this parable, I was like, man, what causes us to lose heart? What would make somebody stop praying? And, and specifically, I came up with, with, I think it's five, five things. Um, and they all start with the letter D. The first one doesn't really, but I had to because I had four others that started with D, so I made a word that worked. But this is it. I think these are the things that can cause us to lose heart, that ca can cause us to stop persisting in our prayer life. And the first one of those is disobedience. Really sin, but like I said, I needed another D word. Disobedience, right? There is nothing that cuts off our prayer life more than sin. 
It's really awkward to pray when you know you've got some sin issue going on in your life. And it's not, it's not necessarily that time when you go, you've got some sin issue going on in your life and you pray and you say, hey, Lord, I've got this going on. Please forgive me. And you're asking for repentance. It's, it's that point when you go, hey, I know I've got this sin thing going on in my life and I'm going to pray No, and I'm going to continue doing the sin thing because I like that more than, than, than the relationship, right? It's like, you know, when you're a kid and you, and you know you've been lying to your parents and you're trying to have a conversation with them, but in the back you know you've got this thing, like you're hiding from them. Like, it just makes it really awkward. So what do you do? You just try to avoid them. Like, don't ask me. Don't ask me about that. Yeah, I'm hiding candy under my bed. Don't ask me. Don't make eye contact, you know? Like, that's what, that's what we're doing with God. In Psalm 66, 18, it says this, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If you've got sin in your heart that you that you're actually enjoy that that you're that you're partaking in the god is 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 not going to listen at that point and that is going to immediately kill our prayer life it will stop it dead the next one is doubt praying with doubt is faithless is faithless and making prayers useless as prayers and faith go hand in hand so do unbelief and not praying I mean, this makes pretty good sense, right? If you either don't believe in God or doubt that God exists, that's not going to really encourage you to pray a bunch. If you doubt that God cares or loves for you, that's not going to really encourage you to pray a bunch. If you doubt that God's actually going to answer your prayers, that's not really like, going to encourage you to pray. If you have doubt in your life regarding God and who he is, then that's going to discourage our prayer life. In Hebrews 4.16, it says this, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You can't go into prayer with doubt. You've got to come confidently. And if you have doubt, that is going to squash your prayer life. The next one is danger. And in America, I was thinking about this, we don't really experience this very much. The people in this time definitely did. But, you know, I think the most dangerous thing for us is to maybe pray, like, you know, you go out with your family to mod pizza, and you're, like, sitting there, and you're like, do I pray? Oh, no, those people are going to totally look at me weird. Let's not do it. You know, like, that's about as dangerous as maybe it gets at times here. But all over the world, it's, it's, it can be dangerous to pray. People that know if you pray, people that hear, can hear you pray, people that see you pray, there's, there's significant consequences throughout history for people that continually pray. And danger, at some point, can dissuade us from continuing to pray. This is a big one, and I, I can almost guarantee that everyone in the room has, has experienced this. Distractions. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I was a part of this, like, I don't know, uh, leadership group or something, kids that wanted to do a little bit more after, after Sunday school stuff. And we would come in in the afternoon after church once a month. And part of this, like, leadership, like, class or training or whatever was is that we were required to go and pray. And it wasn't every month. It was every so often, maybe, like, once a quarter. And if I remember correctly, it was for an hour. It could have been 10 minutes and felt like an hour, but I'm pretty sure it was an hour. And I am not, like, super book smart, but I've got, like, common sense, fairly, like, decent street smarts. And so this is where this comes in. When you're asked to go pray in a church, where do you go? The answer is the nursery. And why do you go to the nursery? Rocking chairs, blankets, and pillows. So I learned this really quick, that when we did this prayer thing, I would go to the nursery, and I would just, like, lay down. 
and like rock and like just, and it was a great spot. No one would follow me. They're like, why are you going to the baby room? I was like, I don't know. Uh, so I would go and I would do that. And I just, I still to this day remember how difficult it was at that time to try to sit and pray for an hour. It just felt like literally like eternity. And I've done the same thing with my middle school group now, except today we can't do an hour because kids would like literally pull their hair out or something. So we try 15 minutes. And in that 15 minutes, kids are still like, they like, they'll have something and they'll like purposefully drop it just to make noise because they're like, I can't deal with this. Like, oh, it's quiet. You know, like they freak out over the fact of like trying to do that and they get distracted super easily. And that happens even, even not in those situations. How many times at night you're like sitting there and you're about to pray and you're like, dear Jesus, I pray, I wonder what the score of the football game is. You know, like, and you just like get all sidetracked and distractions happen. And I think what's worse than a distraction while praying is just the distraction of to even not pray. You know, you're like, oh man, I've gotten to this point at the end of the day. I'm like, I, I didn't pray today. Like, oh, I, I was just busy, you know. Next day I'll catch up and I'll, you know, pray twice. I don't know. Like, and that's kind of how we get. And I think distractions can stop us from our prayer life. Delays is the same thing, right? When it feels like God isn't answering us quickly, quickly enough or at all. In Luke 11, 9 through 13, it says this, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock at the door and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And all things, you, and this is in Matthew 21, 22, and all things you ask in prayer, believe, and you will receive. The Bible says that God's going to answer our prayers. But when we don't feel like God's answering them quick enough, it stops us from praying. All of these things can cause us to lose heart and to give up. But my greatest fear is not necessarily these things. My greatest fear is that our faith in Christ and our love for him will be swallowed up by the sheer ordinariness of daily life. And what I mean by that is, is that there's, no, there's nothing in particular that's terrible that's going to stop us. It's just the amount of stuff going on in our life. Here's an example that I want to share with you. It's a story. Um, I, I love golf, and so this is a, this is a golf story. Um, it's a quote from a guy named Bubba Watson. If you're not a golfer, yes, his name's Bubba, which is fun. He's this big, tall guy. He's a lefty. He uses a pink driver. He's kind of anomaly on, anomaly on, uh, on the tour. He's a Christian guy. He's, he's won the Masters. He's, uh, he's adopted a couple kids. He's never taken golf lessons. He, he just kind of feels the game. and He's just this really interesting, kind of quirky dude. And he said this a couple weeks ago after a tournament. They, they were asking him an interview. He's, he, he had mentioned that he had been meeting with his pastor, and he had actually, uh, self-help, here you go, had, had hired a life coach for some different things as well. And this is what he was talking about. He said, I've got more junk going on in my life. And this isn't necessarily stuff that we have, but when you're on tour and you make millions of dollars, here you go. Car dealership, baseball team, apartment complex, candy shop, driving range, office buildings. I've got to make sure my RV gets to tournaments. I've got to make sure my kids are going in the right things or doing the right things at school. I've got a beautiful wife that I've got to make happy. Just a lot more stuff going on. He went on to explain his goal isn't about playing better golf. It's to live a better life. I've got to get rid of my wins in a heartbeat. I'd get rid of my wins in a heartbeat. I'd work at a golf shop in a heartbeat if I could take care of my family and everything. It's all good junk, but it's just a lot more junk than I had 20 years ago. It's all good stuff. It's just a lot more than I had 20 years ago. I told Danae the other day that I want to marry Kondo my life, like my, my schedule. 
Like, I want to put everything that I'm supposed to do, we're supposed to do as a family, or we want to do, and throw it out on a table. I got church, I got work, I've got uh, golf, I've got, you know, hanging out with my kids, I've got, you know, doing better in my, with my yard work, doing better with cleaning, you know, all the things, soccer practice, whatever it may be, everything that we want to do. Oh, I want to do more house, I want to do more projects, I want to do, you know, oh, we, we want to do more beach trips. Throw it all out on the table and just see it piled up. And see all the stuff every day that I'm supposed to do and that I want to do and that I hope to do. And then at the and to just filter through it. Yeah, this sparks joy. This is what I want. Nope, I don't need this. And kind of like divvy it out. If you're anything like me, you probably feel like you just have a million things to do, right? Your life is busy, it's packed, it's full. And I mean, even with this, honestly, I've already admitted to this. Some days I feel like, man. I'm too busy to pray. Like, I forgot. I got just distracted with normal, everyday life. I found this interesting. Americans are not busier than they ever have been. In fact, that's a myth. In the 1950s, uh, there was this kind of like global decline in annual work hours, and it's continued to decline since the 1950s. We actually work less than we ever have worked. There was a guy in the 1930s that predicted that by the 21st century that we would work only three hours a day. And he said, because of technology, that's how we would get, that's what we get to. Because we wouldn't have to farm and making clothes and all the like things that they had to work on would just become a lot easier and a lot more automatic. It would all help us relax, right? Because it would be easier to get everything we need, like food and clothes and entertainment. And it was called this uh, time period of abundance is what they were calling it. The 21st century was going to be this time period of abundance. And why abundance? It meant abundance of things and abundance of time. And the funny thing is, is we have this now, we have this irony of abundance, right? Knowing that there are 10 great TV shows that you should watch, nine important books to read, eight skills your children haven't mastered yet, seven ways of exer you're exercising wrong, six ways you haven't sufficiently taking advantage of the city you live in. And it just keeps going on and on and on. And what we end up doing is we don't have as much stuff to do, but our options are so great that it always feels like we never accomplish anything. We always have more that we could do. Oh my gosh, I did catch up on all my Netflix shows, but now I've got Amazon Prime shows. Oh my gosh, did you see what happened on Hulu? And you know, like I, I saw this and someone said, have you, how many of you have ever cleared out your inbox and listened to everything on Spotify that you want to? It's impossible. Like, you might get one, but then there's so many other things. There's just this feeling of you will never get to this kind of, like, completed state. And it, it talked about even, like, with work and, and home. You know, back, back when this was written, people would go and they'd farm. And you can't, couldn't farm at night, and, you know, there was these different times. And, like, just by the nature of the job, you had to do these certain things in a certain time. Now, like, we watch cat videos at work and we answer emails at home, right? Like, it's just blended together. So it never feels like you've got anything accomplished. The good things in life can make us just as insensitive to the reality of God as the sinful things in life can. Watching cat videos isn't inherently bad. Watching Netflix isn't inherently bad. Doing all these great things isn't inherently bad. But what can happen is we can just get caught up in our ordinary lives, our daily lives, and it starts to squish out the things that are, are the most important. Remember the question that Jesus asked at the end of the parable? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's look back and think back to chapter 17, what we first read. Did you catch what Jesus lists the people doing before the flood? He said this, eating, drinking, marrying. 
Did you catch what Jesus said the people were doing before the uh, destruction of Sodom? Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. Anything missing? How about the evil stuff that they were doing that caused it? Right? I think judgment didn't just come to both of these people because of a few evil actions. But it came because they were seemingly good things in life. The ordinary activities in life had become godless. It had just become so much stuff that they were doing. They were just living their ordinary lives, but by, by doing that, they were not staying persistent with their faith life. So what's causing you to lose heart? I'm willing to bet for most of us, it's the ordinary things in life. The clutter, the clutter of abundance. Endurance is the measure of a person's persistence. Jesus asks, are you going to endure? Are you going to make it to the end? And to endure, you have to persist time and time and time and time again. And that's that daily choice of saying, hey, I've got all these distractions. I've got all these things coming up, but I'm going to choose to push those away, and I'm going to choose to make my faith life the most important thing. I'm going to choose to pray. To persist in prayer and not give up does not mean endless repetition or painfully long prayer sessions. Doesn't mean that you got to be on your knees for 12 hours a day and, you know, just continually praying. That's not what it means. It means keeping our requests constantly before God as we live for him day by day, believing that he will answer. The widow said five words. That's all she asked for. She didn't come with a huge, long, like, five-page paper of all of her stuff. She said five things, but she was persistent, and she came day after day, checked in with the judge, and said, hey, this is what I need. Hey, this is what I need. Hey, this is what I need. And God's saying, hey, if the judge is willing to answer that, how much more the God that loves you is willing to answer your prayers? When Jesus comes back or calls you home, will you be able to honestly say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith? And another way to put it, simply, I have endured. I have persisted day in and day out. I have been faithful to what you've called me to do. I have endured. I have ran the race. I have fought the good fight. Don't let even the good things in life crowd out the most important thing in life. I think that's what Jesus is teaching us today. Don't let even the good things in life crowd out the most important thing in life, and that's your faith life. And to get that faith life burning we have to pray. We have to connect with God. Let me pray for you, and then we'll finish in songs. Dear God, Lord, I thank you so much uh, for these people. Lord, I thank you so much for your stories and your parables. God, I pray that we would be encouraged today to pray more, to connect with you more, to clear out the things in our lives that don't matter, and to really focus in on the things that do. In your holy name I pray, amen.